Welcome to the Haber Show. Uh, so much craziness in the NBA last night, Wednesday night, and then an even crazier thing happened Thursday morning with Steve Nash out of nowhere being hired by the Brooklyn Nets for their head coaching job. So we're going to bring in uh, the Athletics' John Hollinger, who is uh, covers the league just about as well as anybody. Uh, seven years in the front office for the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, they had four head coaches during his seven years there, so he has a lot to talk about, a lot of perspective with the coaching carousel in the league. We're gonna t- we're gonna hit on Steve Nash in Brooklyn. Um, also talk about the openings in Philly, Chicago, New Orleans. We'll talk about black head coaches in decline in the league and what to do about that. Also, what the league can do about the three shot foul uh, issue in the league, and also the lat you know what debauchery happened in the last uh, minute there at the, down the stretch for both of those games last night and Elam ending, whether that can solve those issues. Also talk about the Lou Dort experience and Chris Paul's legacy uh, and his place in the game. So we'll also touch on a preview for the Lakers rocket series and also hit on the coach Budenholzer, whatever is going on with the Milwaukee bucks right now against the Miami heat. And I make my finals pick that he is very, very surprised about. So without further ado, John Hollinger. John, big news this morning. Steve Nash is being hired to run point guard for the Brooklyn Nets. It's pretty big news for Kyrie Irving. Yeah. uh, You know, hopefully this former star Phoenix Suns point guard as head coach works out better than the last time the Nets tried this. Oh, uh, I would say Jason I would, Kidd, I, would say, I, I, uh, I think yeah, you're referring they, to. They, yeah, they've learned that the spill the Coke trick doesn't work. So, you know, they've, they've advanced the ball a little bit since last time. Uh, obviously, the relationship with Kyrie is going to be critical given his history of prickliness. One of the interesting things here, I think, is going to be what they do vis-a-vis Jared Allen and DeAndre Jordan uh, because – I think Kyrie and and Kevin Durant, from all I've read, wanted wanted DeAndre to be the starter, but Jared Allen is, I mean, clearly the better player. Yeah. So that that that's going to be an interesting dilemma there because that's one of the things that ended up with with Kenny Atkinson getting moved out. Yeah, it's um, I don't know what the roster is going to look like. Whether they're going to try to make some moves to cater to whatever uh, offense that Steve Nash is going to implement, but we can make a fair guess that this is going to be a spread out pick and roll uh, offense where he thrived in Phoenix up tempo seven seconds left, of course, but also in, in warriors land, a lot of passing. Um, And he was a, I don't know even what was his role, his title with the warriors over the past few years. I don't, I don't, I I think it was just consultant. I don't know (laughs) if it ever got beyond that. Um, But I mean, he's, he's done some other stuff too. I mean, he was involved with Canada basketball for a while. Uh, so he's definitely kept his fingers in the game a little bit. It's going to be interesting because if it, if it's like a really pass-heavy type scheme like Golden State did, I don't know if K- Kyrie and KD are the guys for that. I mean, KD kind of bristled at, at, at that in Golden State, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not really how Kyrie likes to play either. So I think it's going to be it's going to be a little closer to to Houston's sort of open open offense than than golden states i would think but based on all that i mean i would think they'll probably try to keep joe harris maybe make some other moves you know try to you know to to reduce their luxury tax bill maybe trade tory and prince do one or two other things 
but but I do think they'll they'll try to keep as much shooting as they can around their two stars. Yeah, I'm wondering, do you think this is a good job? Because when you look at the head coach uh, head coaching vacancies in the league at Philly, New Orleans, Chicago, Indiana, and Brooklyn, I don't think I heard a lot of buzz about Steve Nash getting this gig. Um, I think it took a lot of people by surprise this morning. But I'm looking at like those two stars, KD and Kyrie. Um, I don't know if Moody is the right word. I know Jackie McMullen wrote a big story about the the um, Kyrie Irving and the Nets earlier this season, and that was one of the words that I know people on Twitter took issue with is that, hey, all-stars are moody. Um, everyone's moody. But the point is is that this is going to be a lot of ego management. And mm-hmm. um, not only that, just New York. New York. Like, if you look at the head coaching tenures in New York City, whether it's Brooklyn or New York, I have it down as 15 coaches since Brooklyn or since the Nets moved to Brooklyn eight years ago. So you have Fisdale and then Mike, if you want to count the interim, so that's 15. Um, Mike Miller replacing Fisdale this past season. Then they hired Tom Thibodeau, Jeff Hornacek, Derek Fisher, which is kind of a similar move where he had no head coaching experience and then took over. Mm -hmm. Um, Kurt Rambis filling in and then you had Mike Woodson taking over for Mike D'Antoni over uh, on the Knicks side. And then like, Avery Johnson, Jason Kidd, Lionel Hollins, Kenny Atkinson, and Jacques Vaughn, uh, Tim Brown taking over, and PJ Carlissimo taking over for um, Avery Johnson. So, like, 15 coaches in eight years. The New York media is obviously uh, larger than, say, Memphis, where you were uh, running the mm-hmm. show for seven years. But what do you think about the job itself? Like, is, is Steve Nash, um, if you could pick, I don't know if – other of those organizations were going after Steve Nash, but is that the best job of those vacancies? I think the most desirable job of the vacancies would be either Brooklyn or Philly. I think that's what people would tell you. Um, and, and then maybe Indiana after that, uh, just because you have a chance to win big and you only get that in a few places. Most, most coaching jobs are, are that come open are more similar to the to the Chicago situation, or if it is a winning team, it's a Houston situation where they're maybe on the back nine, and I, I you don't often get a situation where a team is poised to make the jump to be really good right as the head coaching job opens. So I, I think I think for that reason, Brooklyn is still seen as a desirable job. Uh, you know, there's a there's a saying. I mean, uh, people who are trying to get in front offices, talk about this too. There's only 30, yep. right? Yep. There are only 30 jobs in the league and all of them have their warts and you have to decide which ones you can live with and which ones you can't. So I think especially Nash coming into a situation where he has some equity with his name because of who he is. And and so that, that will buy him uh, a, a little bit of goodwill. And he does and have then, a good relationship with KD from what I gather. Um, well, and not just that, the relationship with Marks, with, you know, with where they, you know, they, they were together a little while in Phoenix. And I, I think because of that, uh, he feels a, on a little better footing that he already has a relationship there so that there's maybe a little more trust with the front office and everything that, that he can bring into that. So for, for those reasons, yeah, I, I, th- I think it still lines up more as a quote-unquote good job than, than a bad one. Uh, but I think managing the day-to-day with, with the players is going to be maybe a little 
more unpleasant than it might be some other places. Yeah, and it's not like Steve Nash. It's been like a decade since he played in the NBA, right? Like he's he knows what the pressure cooker of the, of Brooklyn, New York, and also just social media and the constant chatter um, that he's going to be have, having to deal with. Um, but I also look at like what do you think about the idea of like he needs to have experience in the league to succeed because we. We definitely see that where like Steve uh, Steve Kerr didn't have any coaching experience. He had GM experience with the Suns before he took that job and succeeded. But the idea that in order to succeed in Brooklyn, he got a four-year deal. It looks like their championship window is now. Um, yeah. The idea from the research perspective or just your intuition is actual head coaching experience or any coaching experience on the sidelines how much of a an edge does that give someone over someone like Steve Nash? I do think it provides an edge. We don't, the answer to how much, honestly, we don't we don't know. Um, but there is a history of players becoming coaches and making the adjustment relatively quickly. And you know, we saw Larry Bird do it. We saw Doc Rivers do it. We've, we've seen some other players do it with with maybe just a one-year apprenticeship on a bench in between. Uh, you know, guys like uh, Avery Johnson, for instance. Um, I mean, heck, Pat Riley. That's <laughs> that's how he started, right? I mean, he was a former player, and then he was announcing Laker games, and then he was the coach. Yeah. He, he worked out okay. Um, so it, it would seem like a big deal, right? And in practice, I'm not sure if you look at the historical trend line, it— whether it's been as big a deal as you might think. Yeah, and you in Memphis, you went through a, a few coaching hires and fires. Um, what is it that people like me on the outside don't see or fans don't see about what a coach does in the NBA? Head coach, their job. Uh, the other 22 hours of the day. <laughs> fans see the two hours when the game happens and say, oh, he's, he's an idiot because he didn't play so-and-so in the third quarter. And there's just so much more to the job to that in terms of how your team prepares, how you do player development, how you manage all the relationships, uh, both with your players, uh, the dealings with the front office and the owner, little things like, you know, how you set up your practice, how you set up your training camp, how much do you empower your assistant coaches? There's a lot of sort of CEO level management that goes on, especially now. I think that's really changed over the last 10 years. In, in how a coach needs to operate, you know, managing player minutes, managing the season rather than that one game. That, so there's a lot that goes into the puzzle beyond just the X's and O's and selecting players in the two hours that the game is going on. I guess uh, it's time to like look at the coaching carousel here because once, once Steve Nash news hit, I think everyone was wondering, well, what happens to Ty Lue? You know, because that was that was one of the landing spots, probably the favorite landing spot for for Ty Lue when Thibodeau took the job, the Knicks job. But now there's a couple interesting spots for him. One is Philly, and one is New Orleans. New Orleans, of course, because he's got history with uh, David Griffin, the GM there, or the uh, VP of Basketball Ops. Yep. In in New Orleans, and it's super attractive given that they have both veteran talent in JJ Redick and Drew Holiday potentially. Um, and then you have, of course, Zion, you get to coach Zion. That's the billboard. You, you want to coach one of the, the most, uh, transformative players in the league. Um, 20 years old can jump out of the gym, super skilled. 
like people were lining up for the Minnesota job to coach Carl Anthony Towns. I think that's kind of one of the things with Ty Lu is he might look at the situation and say, I get the I get to basically get on the ground floor of, you know, the Zion era in New Orleans. But also if he doesn't want to wait that long, if he doesn't feel like the Pelicans are uh on the cusp, then he can just take the fill or go to Philly. Uh what do you think happens with the Philly opening uh and New Orleans? Philly, it's interesting because there's still the sense that they're doing things by committee over there. So I'm not sure how exactly that that situation ends up. I mean, certainly, yeah, he should be right at the top of the Sixers list. I mean, if you're talking about a team that's in win-now mode, yeah, bring in the guy who won a championship, right? Yeah. Uh, that I mean, that, that seems to make perfect sense there. New Orleans is interesting because, yeah, he can get in on the ground floor. I do think New Orleans is in a situation where they probably need to look at trading Drew Holiday and, and looking a little harder at the team they have two, three, four years down the road uh, and, and Redick as well. I mean, both of them in their last years of their contract, I, I think it would be a failure if, if the Pelicans <laughs> lost those guys and got nothing back, a, you know, a year from now. So, Isn't it odd how, like, Del Demps got, uh, you know, a lot of criticism for kind of doing the same thing as just ramping up too quickly for Anthony Davis? And now, you know, mm-hmm. the Pelicans made some, you know, Derek Favors and J.J. Redick, um, a lot of like veteran guys to bolster Zion Williamson and try to try to make the playoffs. But now it seems like they're kind of in purgatory here. A little bit. I mean, I'll, I'll say this. I mean, they, they didn't give up stuff to get favors and Reddick. So, uh, you know, I can, I can excuse that a little bit. And especially if they're going to turn around and be able to turn Reddick into an asset. Yep. Uh, you know, I, th- I think they end up with a win, win on the scorecard with that then. But I, I do think they need to be smart about this and look at, okay, what do we look like if we have Ingram on a max or a near max and Zion on his deal? And who, who are the pieces that really fit around that? And, and what, what do we want there long-term, you know? And I think they have to ask some hard questions about some of the other players and, and how the pieces all, all, fit now like should Lonzo be a part of this or is he a better fit someplace else um they got a couple other guys I think they need to ask the same questions about I'm gonna throw out a name here it's probably too ridiculous coach K oh for Philly yeah with the Elton Brand connection sure yeah uh I I mean I would be I would not be basketball playing this year like yeah I I would not be surprised if if that phone call has been made but uh who'd who knows? I mean, there have been many overtures made to Coach K in the past, and he's resisted them all. So, and and New Orleans also has Trajan Langdon as the GM, JJ Redick, uh, of course, Brandon Ingram, like a bunch of Dukies on that roster. Um, it's like Dukie South. I mean, I hate to say that because as a weight <laughs> guy, uh, we don't have much left. Um, maybe Steve Forbes, like coach, could bring in a new Wake Forest golden era. But ever since Skip Prosser left, it's uh, or passed away. Sorry, it was one of those things that. Uh, yeah. It, I would love to see a Duke uh, equivalent for a Wake Forest front office, but we're we're struggling here. I know. Well, you got we a little needed, bit of a tree over with the do, UVA. What we needed to do is have me join forces with tony bennett in brooklyn to coach joe harris and justin anderson yeah that, that's the thing that needed to happen but for it they hired nash now so it can't that's true although lloyd pierce used to play with steve nash at college of santa clara 
So there's now a Santa Clara coaching tree, by the way. So that, Coach K, Coach K, I think is an interesting name. Of course, Jay, Jay Wright pulled his name out of the Philly mm-hmm. uh, with that with that statement. But I did notice that he said, "I am not a candidate," which I. Considering how coaches move around like like uh, decks on a Titanic these days, it's just like he didn't say I'm not going to be a. Ca- I pull my name out of this. I, I'm happy at at Villanova. I'm just saying I'm not willing to put that to rest. Um, I'm not re- ready to bury that that possibility. But Philly, certainly with Ty Lue, it's it's super interesting, especially with his uh, relationship with LeBron and Clutch over the years. He has experience dealing with. Uh, you know that that type of ego management with superstars and on the cusp. I think there's that's a, a really interesting candidate. But also, uh, Iman Udoka, also the assistant for Brett Brown, could yeah. potentially be promoted into that spot. But I also think in Chicago that could be an interesting landing spot for him. Yeah, I think so too. Um, you know, more of a development situation that there in Chicago uh, rather than a win now. I think it's I think it's hard it's a hard sell in Philly to fire Brett Brown and then hire his top assistant. I I, I just I just don't know. Worked out for that. Toronto. It, it worked. Yeah, it did. It did. <laughs> uh, that's yeah, that's a fair point. But I, I don't know. I to to me Chicago maybe makes a little more sense for that one. Uh, but yeah, I mean he's a name that's been out there since he was an assistant in San, in San Antonio. Portland, Oregon, by the way, Tom. At, I mean, what, you think Stotts is on the hot seat? No, I'm just saying he's from Portland. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's true. I was like, ooh, are you breaking news here about Portland? <laughs> no, 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 not Stotts at all. No. <laughs> um, you know, when you look at Indiana in that position, I know the rumor is that Mike D'Antoni is, is you know, they're just waiting for Mike D'Antoni to become a, a free, a coaching free agent so they could scoop him up in Indiana. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, I tweeted about this earlier is heading into the bubble. Uh, there were eight coach blackhead coaches in the league. Now there's five. Um, there's a few openings here, but five would be by far the lowest we've had in the NBA. I think in NBA history, you had mm-hmm. David Fisdale, uh, JB Bickerstaff, Lionel Hollins, as your head coach yes. during your tenure. So w- what's going on here? Because Nate McMillan, Alvin Gentry and Jacques Vaughn, who is, um, who is taking Steve Nash's top associate job underneath him. What's, what's that about? Is it one of these things that there's an implicit bias in hiring practices around the NBA? Um, is it, there's not enough black coach candidates because I don't think that's true. I mean, you look at Darvin Ham and Vanderpool um, who should be uh, candidates in Chicago and wherever, yeah. like why aren't they getting more pub for these jobs um, than say someone like Steve Nash? I think he could be a great head coach, uh, two-time MVP, one of the most beloved teammates in NBA history, but he's also taking a black head coach's job that he did pretty damn good for Brooklyn, at least in the uh, seeding games. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's part of a wider question in the league i think which is people are always gonna hire based on relationships first and the people they know and the people who who they're closest to tend to be people who you know look the most like them and have the same experiences and and you know so so there's that inevitable thing from ownership down on down 
And I think that's always been a big part of it. Now, the the more interesting question that you pointed out is it's gone from, did you say 15 to... Yeah, in 2012, 2013, there was right. 14 NBA coaches who were black. Okay. And... I mean, we may see that number go back up a little bit, you know, if we get, you know, if you get Lou in Philadelphia and Adoka in Chicago, let's say that takes you back to what, eight, seven, yep. seven. Yeah. But still, still as a league, not doing well enough, you would think, because you, you're right that the candidates are there and it just seems harder for them to break through uh, and you know, every specific team will tell you that they made their own decision. I mean, I think that's one of the things that the NFL has had a lot of trouble with, with the Rooney rule is that it's, it's hard to tell any individual team, you have to do this, but you can see what the result is in the aggregate. Right. Yeah. It's, I, I, like you said, this is kind of a top down issue. It's, majority white ownership. And although it's probably the most diverse of all of the four major sports, I would say, um, at the ownership level, the only African-American majority owner in, in American pro sports is Michael Jordan. Right. Right. And, and of course, if we want to go that route, he hires for the GM, Mitch Kupchak, who is one of his buddies from Carolina. Um, and, JB James Borrego um, is not a white head coach. He's uh, Latino descent. And so when you look at you, the NBA as a whole, how much are you going to get, you know, black head coaches without black leadership positions? And so I think it, it is a question of top down. And also it takes people writing about it, making it a thing um, and having more awareness and, you know, things might change with new uh, you know, Mark Eversley but, in Chicago, you have new GMs who are, who are African American. Yeah, Brian Wright. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, Trajan Langdon uh, in new Orleans. Uh, so, uh, Cleveland, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Kobe Altman. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Um, and JB Bickerstaff is the head coach there and he took mm -hmm. over, uh, for beeline, but also is, is the full-time head coach going forward, which by the mm. way, I got wrong. Lloyd Pierce corrected me on that when I, I had him on the pod. He's like, no, no, no. JB's the, the head coach going forward. So Sorry, JP. Yeah. All right, let's take a quick break to hear about a podcast that should be in your rotation. This is Mike Tirico introducing you to Sports Uncovered. When I lose the sense of motivation and the sense of to prove something as a basketball player, it's time for me to move away from the game of basketball. Quote unquote, I'm back. I'm back. The two-word facts from Michael Jordan announcing the most famous comeback in NBA history. That's the most impactful two words ever. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Sports Uncovered for free wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, back to the conversation. So, switching gears here, uh, let's talk about what happened last night. I mean, I thought we were going to spend an hour talking about the, the endings, the finishes last night, because they were just epic and all the best in terrible ways. Uh, but I want to hit on this thing first is, according to Inpredictable.com, the final minutes of gameplay in both the Milwaukee Bucks and Miami Heat game, uh, and then the game seven between OKC and Houston, in the final minute, took 16 minutes of real time for both of those games in eternity, it felt like, because of just snafus on the refereeing side and just everyone's flopping left and right. 
Um, and you may note of this, and this is this has been one of your big uh, pet peeves in the league is the three shot foul, and maybe just in general the idea of uh, referees giving too much or paying too much attention to flopping on on jump shots. And you saw Jimmy Butler and Chris Middleton at the end of that game. I think it's a huge problem for the league is when you see that how good the Elam ending was for the All Star game. And then also for the TBT, and in contrast, just kind of the giant fart of the end of these games uh, lately. Mm-hmm. What do you think the NBA does here? Because um, they can hand out flopping fines. They handed one out to Marcus Smart, the second one over the last three years. It was a it was a mess. Uh, okay, let's go to OKC in Houston. I mean, I don't, I don't even know what happened at the end of that game. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, obviously we had we had multiple timeouts. Um, I think one of the things we need to talk about is that so the way they want the refs to call this, the way they're instructed to call this, those were the correct calls. Okay? So what you have to ask yourself is if we had an Elam ending, would you be okay with the game ending on a three-shot foul and the guy stepping up to the line and hitting three? I don't know. Maybe you'd be okay with it. Mm. I, it, both both teams are actually out of challenges by by then too, which was interesting. Um, the 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 Houston OK OKC game was something almost entirely different because they had to do so much replay. Um, I, I thought like the the Milwaukee Miami game. The thing that bothered me was that there are actually a couple of missed calls before we ever got to those last fouls, and and like kind of kind of ones you shouldn't miss. Giannis second free throw, like Dragic was inside the three point line way early. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that's supposed to be a violation. Uh, The Jimmy Butler turnover. uh, He takes two steps, jumps with the ball, uh, lands out of bounds and then throws it, Uh, you know, should have been blown dead there. Uh, George Hill may have had his hand on the ball while being out of bounds, which would have also been been a dead ball. Like there was a lot that that was just missed before that ever happened. Um, and you know, like the stuff Chris Paul and James Harden did at the end of, at the end of the, that game last night, like that was, that was funny, but that didn't really extend the ending at all. Right. No, no. Like that, was, that just, was, was just, just bad try- optics. It just, it was just, it was just them trying to take a dive, you know, <laughs> just to get a garbage call. Um, the other thing you can do is eliminate timeouts in the last three minutes, you know, say you can advance the ball, but you don't get a timeout. Yeah. The, the old advance rule from the G league, uh, I mean, that's that's what will speed up those games, because in the last two minutes, they're always going to go to replay. You know, they're always going to go to replay on possession. So that's going to slow things down and on clock. You know, that that door. We lost a couple minutes on that Dort play, for instance. Uh, but Wait, which I, Dort play? Because there's the, a, a the billion of them. <laughs> then, he, then he jumps up for it. And, and uh, he, had, yep. he, had, he had jumped from out of bounds, uh, which is a good observation by the officials. I mean, get, getting that right is important. I don't mind losing a couple minutes there, but there was there was a lot of other nonsense and hoot nanny in there too that I, that I think just dragged things out. Let's talk about the three shot foul because that I wrote about in two, 2017 how James Harden was changing the league because he was unbelievably good at flopping or deceiving or selling whatever you want to call it. You know, contact, whether it's landing or, um, you know, on the hand, just falling. It's amazing the physics of it, John, when you're when you're taking a three pointer and then someone grazes your left pinky and suddenly your legs give out. Um, yeah, James Harden was amazing at that. And the funny thing is, 
Goran Dragic that season, I wrote about this. Goran Dragic played the Rockets early in the 2016-17 season and Harden was just getting three-shot fouls left and right. And Goran was like, screw this. I'm going to do it now. And he just like immediately after that Houston game, he had never really done it before. Immediately after that game, he stole the move from Harden and just started falling on all his three-pointers. And he was getting calls left and right. And suddenly Goran Dragic became like the best three-shot foul guy in the league um, after that. And so it has spread like a virus um, throughout the league. Right now, I counted something like 86 three-shot fouls or fouled three-point makes, so four-point opportunities um, in the league, in the playoffs. And that's an enormous number considering like we only have like 46 games that we're working with. So it's up. Uh, you're going to get at least one every game, a three-shot foul or a foul three-pointer. And that Brooke Lopez play that you pointed out on Twitter, I mean, they reviewed it. And it's still, yeah. he's kicking out his leg. For that to be upheld on replay was bad because, yeah, they they need they need to they need to enforce the leg kicks. And the problem is, I so I wrote about this earlier in the year for The Athletic. Yep. It's really hard for the officials, especially like, because it's, Usually it's the closest official making the call, but when you're close to the player, you can either watch the hands or the feet, but you cannot watch both at the same time. It is not humanly possible. And so you're going to miss the leg kick and and the, the ref, you can see so many times where the ref is too close to see the leg kick and he, he gets fooled by it. Yeah. And, uh, Brooke Lopez has a few of those Middleton has, uh, four of them in the playoffs. Damian Lillard now has five. Uh, Duncan Robinson's really good at this. And of course, like because these guys are such good three-point shooters, they're, they're going to draw contact on those shots. But there is a lot of theatrics involved. And the irony of this whole thing, John, is that Harden has like two. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Like, they've, they've not eradicated it from Harden's game. It's certainly he's trying. But the rest of the league is doing it. So you figured out James Harden, like... He's selling this. It's it's flopping, whatever you want to call it. But it's everybody else in the league has now caught on. I mean, the Orlando Magic had uh, like 11 of them in five games. The Magic. Terrence yeah. Ross is, yeah. is really good at this. Um, so, you know, that's one of the things that I think a lot of fans, when they're watching, even though the three-point the three point shot is most one of the most exciting things in the game, it's gotten to the point where selling a three point three shot foul has become a real skill in the league. And I don't think that's a good thing. Three shots for, first of all, it's a lot of time to just be standing around at the free throw line. And what, what was your, um, it was a great piece you, you wrote for the athletic earlier this year, but what do you see as the solution to this problem from, you know, a realist practical standpoint for the league? Just make it a two shot foul again, yep. until the last two minutes. I mean, in the last, in the last two minutes, I can understand you don't want people intentionally fouling three-point shooters to just make it two. Yep. You know that that to me is a reasonable accommodation. But in the first 46 minutes of the game, you got you got to get this garbage out where a guy comes around a screen, feels a hand on him, and just lunges into this, and you know, no chance of going in. And it's not even a foul you would have called at all, except the guy lunged into a fake shooting motion, and now you're giving him three shots for that. That that is just hot garbage and and needs to get out of the game. So here's the final. Okay, I have 69 
three or fouled three pointers in the playoffs so far. There's 46 mm-hmm. games, so that's about one and a half per game. When I wrote that piece, I think there was like 0. 0.88 in 2017 per game. So now we're getting almost twice that in mm-hmm. this in this postseason. So of course, players are taking more threes um, than they did a couple years ago, but. It's it's one of the things I've been watching and and flopping of course has been a hot button issue in the league but um more recently they just haven't been you know uh punishing it. They haven't been Yeah. Uh I guess because they've given up. Yeah, I guess there's that and maybe until it becomes a PR issue where where Doris Burke is talking about it on the broadcast or Stan Van Gundy's talking about the broadcast or whoever or inside the NBA's talking about it, maybe they don't need to uh to police it as much, but, um, that's something that I know you're, you're real passionate about. And I wanted to hit here. Now let's spend a couple minutes here, John, about Lakers rockets. Mm -hmm. I think this is going to be, um, on paper. I think Houston would have a real shot, but I just don't think they have the energy after what we saw. I I don't think the transition game is going to be good for them. Houston, I think James Harden looks gassed. And of course, you have Russell Westbrook, who's been really, really uh, up and down and mostly down in this in the playoffs here, um, dealing with the quad issue. If they were fully energized and fully healthy, I might say this goes deep. But considering the Lakers have been rested and I think they'll just wear them out in this series, I, I think this could be over quickly. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about taking Houston in this series uh, when the playoffs began. And the more I've seen of them, I'm kind of edging away from that. I, I I mean, I do think Harden's going to be able to score a lot more ably against uh, the Laker guards than he did against uh, Lugans Dort, who did a great job on him. But I think the Lakers are going to be able to score a lot more, too. Um you know, that that series went seven and went to the final minute of game seven, even with Billy Donovan leaving $20 bills all over the table. Um, so I, I, it's just hard for me to say that that team is going to turn around and beat the Lakers now. I, I do think the transition defense is going to be a real problem for Houston. I think Harden continuing to defer to Westbrook late in games is going to be a real problem. Because when you play against the Lakers, what's that? That's Westbrook attacking Anthony Davis, basically. Like, yeah. that's that's not a plan that's going to work. Uh, and I, I, I just think the Lakers just have a little more basketball craftiness to them to attack some of the, the switching and some of the ways that Houston is going to play them. I do think the Lakers should try to go small, though. I, I don't think this is a JaVale McGee series. So I, I'm interested to see how quickly... They adjusted that. They'll probably come out that way in game one, but I, I am interested to see when you get game two, game three, game four, if they start pulling back on McGee and start playing more with Davis at five, LeBron at four. Are you still picking Houston? No, I'm picking the Lakers. Okay. You said you're moving off, moving away a little bit from uh, picking the Rockets. I didn't know if you were still going to pick them or not. Um, Anthony Davis has to continue to be just bullying guys in the paint. Um, and PJ Tucker, Rocco, I mean, they're going to do a by committee guarding AD, but that's not his, I don't think AD likes being the five. Uh, that's been his thing over the you know last few years is uh, the Omer Ashik era, uh, Robin Lopez. I mean, you throw in 
I mean, who else is, uh, did New Orleans get to play the five so that he would? Uh, Ajinsa? Yeah. 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 No, they, they churned through a lot of bad centers there. That's that's <laughs> definitely true. And I I do think there... So there's two perspectives, right? There's like regular season mode where you say, I'm going to save my best player from the pounding over 82 games. And there's like playoff mode, like we need to win a game today. Yeah. And this is the best way that we can do it. Uh, so, and I I also think... Like even even PJ Tucker, like with the amount of switching that Houston does, how often is he even going to be posting up against PJ Tucker versus posting up against somebody who's just smaller and lighter than he is? Um, and it, I don't know. I I, I think that's going to be a very profitable thing for the Lakers, much more than it was for for say Stephen Adams for Oklahoma City. Let's hit on Duke. Uh, Dor- yes, let's hit Duke. Let's slap around Duke some more. <laughs> yes. Um, please, uh, explain to me the Lou Dort experience. Have you, I know, I know you were writing about him, you know, I think you pointed out he had a 0.6 PER in the, in the series, um, against Houston before last night's game. But what happened, like, how does a Lou Dort happen? I know they didn't guard him. Um, and I know Chris Paul was, uh, you know, reportedly coaching him up and saying, you know, take those shots and get those shots up. But like when he shoots, the rotation is awful. It like that's one of the things I look at when whether I can project a player as being a good shooter or mm-hmm. not. Like it looks like Joakim Noah out there. Like it, the rotation's all over the place. It's not fluid. He's pointing his toes in the wrong way. But he was amazing. He was great. He hits amazing shots. And I don't want to compare it to Marcus Smart because Marcus Smart actually can hit threes. Like he's consistently. Yeah either average or above average three point shooter now, but where did you have Lou Dort in your prospect rankings or in the draft? Cause he went undrafted and now he's starting games against yeah. James Harden. Well, I was, I was still uh, an employee of the Grizzlies at that point. So I didn't really have anything uh, out there for, for public consumption. I was surprised he didn't get, get drafted though. I mean, when I, when I scouted him at Arizona state, I mean, you didn't see him have to defend people like James Harden, but you could see, how he could be a good, really good defensive player with his physical build and his athleticism, and all the questions were at the offensive end. Uh, like, like you said, I mean, the shot is uh, jacked up like crazy arc, but the rotation's not right, and, and you know he he managed to hit a bunch, uh, but I I don't think that's a repeatable thing necessarily. And then even when he goes to the basket, like doesn't have great uh, vision. He's strong, but he tends to just rely on kind of you know. Heisman Trophy guys out of the way and and try to finish that way. So the the offensive game is definitely well behind the defense. But yeah, it was a, it was a real surprise to me that he didn't go in the top sixty. I thought I thought he was a guy who was going to go between twenty and forty. It was incredible to watch last night. Just uh, you know, and and James Harden closing him out and getting the block. Um, such a crazy, crazy game. Yeah. I mean, Roka- by, by the by the way, if you use one of your two timeouts there and run the isolation play that you were going to run anyway, and everyone saw you were going to run, um, then you get Gallinari on the floor, and he's the one taking that shot, and he's six nine. I don't understand why they had Stephen Adams on the floor there. If he's just a decoy by the rim, and they're not going to even look at him. Understand why he played the entire fourth quarter. I mean, I, I was I was writing this, uh, you know, games ago, but uh, especially leading into Game Seven, uh, I wrote you should you should play Noel if you play any five at all. Yep. But 
play Gallinari and Baisley as your four or five against these guys, and you're going to be a lot more capable of scoring. And then on that last play, if they had had Noel in there, they had a rim run and a dunk on both on <laughs> yep. both plays. Yeah. On the um, on the first one where they couldn't get it inbound and called timeout, um, or or had the hold or whatever, uh, you know, the foul off the ball eventually. And then on on the second play where Stephen Adams ended up wandering out to the three point line, but like if if that was Noel, like he just slips to the basket and it's an alley oop dunk and it's tie game. So, but uh, I don't know. I just I just thought that was a really disappointing coaching performance as good a job as Billy Donovan did to get to the thunder to this point, the, the adjustments in the series just weren't there. Like he was just on autopilot the whole time. Speaking of autopilot and not making adjustments, John, Mm -hmm. Mike Budenholzer, who was the Uh uh, co coach of the year with Billy Donovan as voted by the coaches. Um, Mm -hmm. Nick nurse plays third in that. Um, Mike's not doing a great job here. Uh, Yeah. You know, he was criticized for this in the Toronto series last year, too, that he didn't make enough adjustments, that he kept his starters on the bench too long, and that there were too many random moments with, uh, like, his third best player and four subs on the court. And that came back to bite Milwaukee late in that Toronto series after it seemed like they had it under control early, and really seemed to uh, affect them these first two games as well. I mean, I know there were some foul issues, but I thought he was really conservative with foul trouble in both games, and that limited the minutes of his best players. And then was able to get Wes Matthews on the court at the end, uh, which he did not at the end of game one. He had Pat Connaughton out there. Yep. Yeah, it's a little, little, uh, <laughs> little, 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 tr- little tricky there for, for sure. Um, I've been in general, like I haven't been that surprised that Miami can defend Milwaukee, but I have been surprised that they've been able to score more easily than I thought. Yeah, I thought I thought they wouldn't be able to score against Milwaukee at all. They're getting to the rim a lot more than I thought. Like when Tyler Hero is getting to the rim at will, uh, that's something. Um, they got great play from Jimmy Butler there, uh, you know, in game one, especially late. But Jimmy's Jimmy's jump shot has been gone for a, a long time. Um, and yeah. even in clutch situations, he's been misfiring a lot more than what we've come to know from Jimmy Butler in the past, but they're getting to the rims. Like that's the thing that the Milwaukee Bucks pride themselves on. It's why one of the, one of the great, uh, defenses of all time is they just wall off the paint. They have so much, they just let you take threes at the cost of, look, we're not going to let you get to the rim with Giannis and Brooke yeah. Lopez. Uh, we're going to wall off the paint. And mm-hmm. my, Miami yeah. with Eric Spolster has just done an amazing job getting uh, actions towards the rim. But, um, you know, 36 minutes in game one for Giannis and 36 minutes in game two. Giannis saying after the game, like, look, I only take orders from the coach. He's the coach. Da, da, da. And the same thing with guarding Jimmy Butler. Uh, you know, it's it's up to coach. Like, Giannis, Giannis hasn't been at that point in his career where I think he can just say, look, I need to be out there. 48 minutes. He's not going to blow up uh, Bud like that. But man, when you have a two-time MVP, when you're down in a series, I feel like I feel like 36 is not the right number. It's not. Well, yeah. I mean, they're taking him out for rests in the fourth quarter. They, you know, they did that with with uh, Lopez and with Middleton too. Uh, so it's yeah, like like you said, yeah. I mean that that's a game where you got to go 40. I think 
So really interested to see if he can distract or if he can change course uh, in game three and 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 go veer off the the plan because he seems like he's on the regular season plan even when he gets to the playoffs. All right, knee-jerk reaction, obviously. Celtics up 2-0 as we're recording this, and the Heat's up 2-0. Lakers and Clippers are about to kick off their series. Where, Who were you picking in the finals, like the finals matchup before the playoffs started, and where are you at now? So I said Bucks clippers before we started, uh-huh. and my reasoning was that I, I thought Boston would get by Toronto, and I didn't think Boston had anyone who could guard Giannis. Um, and, and that's what played out last year in the playoffs. Uh, the Bucks, Bucks are in trouble here. I, I still kind of think they end up winning this series. Mm. I like I, I, I still think there's just too much of a talent disparity there. But they they put themselves in a tight spot. Clippers, I feel great about the Clippers. I, I think they look better than anybody right now. Yeah, I might go Clippers Heat right now. That's where I'm at. Heat in the finals. Heat in the finals. Beating Boston. Got a lot of homerism here. With uh, six years in Miami. Um, Come on, man. You moved to Charlotte like years ago. <laughs> I, I I love what the Heat are doing. Both ends. Of, I don't think Bam has even hit his ceiling yet. Uh, he's been playing good. I love what the Heat are doing on both ends of the floor. Boston, it's it's going to be an amazing series if we have Boston-Miami. Um, but uh, yeah, I just love I love what I'm seeing from Miami. You think it's ludicrous that they get to the finals? They got to win one. Well, they got to put down the Bucks. But I just uh, I love the way they're playing, uh, the confidence, the way that Jimmy is leading. Um, he's hitting shots that he normally hasn't. But I think they have the shooting. They're gonna have they're gonna be exploited a little bit on the perimeter defense. And Goran's playing great. Maybe I'm doing a little too much recency bias and drinking the Miami Heat Kool Aid. Uh, but I I think Miami's got the edge here. Could be. I mean, the Bucks have to win four out of five here is the problem, right? So even if Milwaukee outplays them the rest of the way, they, they have to outplay them by a pretty wide margin. Mm-hmm. So they, they've, I mean, they've put themselves in a tight spot for sure. Anything else you want to hit before the games, uh, you know, the, the Western Conference tips off here? I'm drawing a little bit of a blank here. I, you know, I think these games are really, really, really been good these last couple of days. I've really been entertained. And uh, I, I think the league overall is in a really good spot, um, even though we we kvetch about all the shortcomings, you know, yeah. about cleaning up the end, the end of the game. So it's not so time consuming. Uh, you know, what what more can we do about the flopping and the three shot fouls at the end of the day? The product's in a pretty good place right now. Yeah, the the, the players, when you see Donovan Mitchell and the Jamal Murray battles, how hard the Jazz were playing with Rudy Gobert having a double double in the fourth. Um, Chris Paul, look, people are going to knock him because he's never been to the finals, and uh, I'm a, I'm a homer for for weight guys, but I just want to see him in the finals just once. I just want to see people understand how good this dude is, um, and with mm-hmm. OKC, what they've done this year, he's going to get a lot of flowers for how he's, uh, you know, taken taken that team back to the playoffs after what happened last summer and getting that trade. But man, I, uh, he is so good. He is so good. And, uh, you know, the, had a couple miscues there down the stretch. Um, and he, he 
didn't take the free throw for Gallo, which is, I know Gallo's a great free throw shooter and he's, uh, he's actually a little bit, a tick above him career wise. Yeah. But man, I wanted to see CP out there for that shot. Well, I, th- I think Gallo took the free throw to warm him up because the last play was for him. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. I, I think that's what it was. Yeah. That might've yeah, been. Cause he was, he's, Cause he's the only guy with enough size to like catch and shoot over a closeout, man. All right. Well, we've got, uh, we got the Western conference, uh, semis coming up here. Um, and coaching carousel has gotten off to a crazy start here with Tom Thibodeau going to New York. And then you have Steve Nash going to, uh, to Brooklyn. We'll see what happens the rest of the way, but John Hollinger, thank you for, uh, for hopping on the Haber show this week and, uh, stay safe and be healthy. Okay. All right, go Wahoos. Oh, man, you had to do it. You had to do it. (laughs) All right, that'll do it this week's episode of The Haber Show. I want to thank John for joining me. You can catch his work over at The Athletic, over at uh, the Hollinger and Duncan podcast. Uh, Also, if you haven't listened to it yet, I talk with the Minnesota Timberwolves uh, president of basketball operations, Gerson Rosas, about the number one overall pick and a crazy year for Minnesota Uh, both on and off the court. So go listen to that episode last week. Um, And until next time, please stay safe and healthy out there. Uh, Talk soon.